Well, good evening, Eastside Church family. Uh, tonight, we are not meeting in person, but we are doing this over Facebook Live in a virtual service. But even though we're not meeting together, I hope that this study will be a blessing to you. Uh, tonight, we are continuing our study of Created to Draw Near. And this evening, we're looking at chapters 34 and 35. And before we look at the study together, let's take a moment and bow before the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to study your word. Lord, your word is precious. It is the treasure house of your wisdom and truth. Lord, we thank you for this study that we've had the opportunity to go through that opens up to us elements of your word that describe uh, the fact that you have called us as your children, believers in Christ, to be priests of the Most High God, and to draw near to you, to come into your presence and to fellowship and commune with you, and for you to be near us as our God. Father, we thank you for this study. I pray that as we look at these couple of chapters tonight, that you would give us more insight into how you have designed for us to be near you and in fellowship with you, and Lord, to represent you before the world. So, Father, bless this time that we have. In Jesus' name, amen. Tonight, as we look at chapter 34 together, he continues to bring up different images, uh, different symbols that communicate this idea of priesthood that we've seen throughout the scriptures. And so a good portion of this study was in the Old Testament, kind of laying the foundation for the concept of priesthood as we saw it primarily in the Old Testament priesthood, in the Levitical priesthood and the sacrificial system. And now we're taking some of those Old Testament pictures, types and symbols, and we're bringing them forward into the New Testament where uh, we see uh, these symbols kind of given new meaning and take on greater significance for us now as believers in Christ, as part of the church. And the symbols that he's looking at in chapter 34 are the symbols of living stones and flowing fountains. And in scripture, we see stones used in different ways that are highly significant. For example, we see many times throughout scripture, stones used as memorials of significant times where God interacts or, or blesses his people. And so several times we see, uh, for example, Abraham or Isaac or Jacob uh, setting up memorial stones uh, as a remembrance uh, to what the Lord had done, how they had, how the Lord had blessed them. Uh, we also see the stones that are used to construct the temple in the Old Testament. And then that imagery moves forward into the New Testament where we see Christ described as the temple himself. He says, tear down this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. But he's also described as the individual cornerstone of the temple, uh, the, the main stone that supports, upholds the whole thing. Uh, and we as believers now in Christ, in union with Christ through faith in him, we too as believers are called now living stones that come together to form a temple. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, he says, As you come to him, 
the living stone. So there it's talking about Christ, the living stone. Rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. All kinds of temple and priestly imagery there in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. He describes us as living stones. Christ, the living stone, but now us in Christ as his believers, also as living stones, being put together, if you will, kind of like stones on top of stones being constructed into a temple, but not a physical temple made of concrete or blocks, but a spiritual house, he says, to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, not literal physical animal sacrifices, but spiritual sacrifices through our worship, our obedience and service to God. And so he uses this imagery of us as living stones in union with Christ. Ed Welch says in the chapter, he says, this spiritual house, this uh, building of believers, if you will, of living stones is the most holy place where God's holiness was most concentrated and his glory most vivid. And so there is something quite special, quite set apart and consecrated about the church of God coming together and assembling, which is why I wish we could do that at this time. But this pandemic has created different scenarios and circumstances where we're not able to be together every week. But that is the ideal. And the ideal is for this reason, because when we come together, we are a temple of the living God, where God's spirit comes to dwell among us as he did in that tabernacle and temple in the Old Testament. We see uh, Paul also say in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, he says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Here he's talking about Gentiles who were far away from God, but now because of the unmerited grace of God are being brought near to God and bring, being engrafted into the spiritual house of Israel. So he says, you are now fellow citizens with God's people, members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. So there we see Christ, the cornerstone, and then the apostles and prophets and teachers that Jesus called serving as the foundation of this new spiritual house that Christ is building. In him that is in Christ, the whole building is joined together, Jews and Gentiles, all peoples, joined together as one house of the living God and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, in Christ, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So Paul is emphasizing the unity of the church, the unity of the body of Christ, and how now through the gospel and through the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, people of all races and tribes and languages and tongues, Jews and Gentiles are being brought together into one 
building, one temple, one holy sanctuary where God dwells. And so we are like a new temple. We are a new temple. Christ is the cornerstone. He is the chief stone that this temple is built upon. The apostles and the teachers of the first generation church, they are the foundation upon which this temple is built. So the apostles, the writers of the New Testament, and then we as believers are being built on top of Christ, the cornerstone and the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. We see Paul saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So we see that in the New Testament, collectively, as the church, we are a temple of the living God. But also, in a sense, individually, we are a temple of God because we individually have been bought with a price by the redemptive work of Christ on the cross. And God has granted us his Holy Spirit to come and to live, to dwell inside of us. Therefore, we are a temple of the Holy Spirit of the living God. And Paul is urging the believers in 1 Corinthians 6 to honor God with their bodies, with their lives, particularly in in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians in the realm of sexual morality, because their bodies belong to God. It is God's temple. It is a holy sanctuary. And so we, we see this temple imagery all over in the New Testament. We see the idea of uh, glorifying. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, he says, we are temples, therefore glorify God in your bodies, which belong to God. So this idea of glory is connected with that Old Testament temple tabernacle imagery. When the tent of meeting, the tabernacle was finished, all of it done according to God's pattern that he gave to Moses on the mountain, we read in Exodus that God's glory came to rest, came to dwell in that tabernacle, in that sanctuary. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, you now, you glorify God in your bodies, which are sanctuaries of the living God. In Romans 12, 1, we read the language of a living sacrifice. So there again, priestly imagery, sacrificial imagery. We ourselves are a living sacrifice to God. In John 4, 14, we read that uh, Jesus is the living water. And now he has given to us living water to satisfy our thirst. And now we are then being used by God to grant life and water and healing to those that we spread the gospel to. Uh, We are called the light of the world in Matthew 5, 14. And so Jesus says, don't don't put your light uh, under a, a a bushel basket, but let your light shine that others may see your good works and bring glory to your father in heaven. So we are called the light of the world, just like there was that candle abra, that candlestick in the Old Testament tabernacle and sanctuary. We are too called to be the light of the world. 
in the Old Testament sanctuary. You had the bread of presence or the showbread that the priest would change over. And those pieces, those loaves of bread, 12 of them would represent the 12 tribes of Israel. They represented God's people near God, in God's house, right outside the door of God's holy presence in the most holy place. And so we are the showbread, if you will. We're the people of God represented by that bread in the presence of God, kept close to God. Uh, We are offering up prayers, which are incense and aroma rising up to the Lord. We read in Revelation 8, 3. So priestly sacrificial temple imagery all over the New Testament used to describe us as believers. And so then we also see that this, uh, this symbol of stones, living stones being made, fashioned into a temple for the presence of God, that stones in, in the scriptures, interestingly enough, also by the power and the grace of God are able to be sources of life-giving water, which sounds strange to us, right? How can stones yield water? and bring forth life-giving refreshment. Well, we read one story in the Old Testament where Moses was traveling with the people of Israel through the wilderness on their way out of Egypt, out of bondage, on the way to the promised land. And they came to a point where there was no water. There were no rivers, no lakes, nothing for them nearby where they could get water. And the people started to complain. And God tells Moses in Exodus, to go and to strike the rock to bring forth water. So we read in Exodus 17, verses five and six, the Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. Water, life-giving water, refreshment, flowing out of a hard stone, a rock. This is the power of God to take that which is dead, inanimate, not life-giving, and turn it into something that is, has life and produces and gives life. Of course, we read later on that uh, there was another time when Moses was told in the second instance not to strike the rock, but to speak to the rock, simply to say the words and water would flow out. Moses was angry with the people. He was angry with their rebellion and their complaining. And in his anger, he struck the rock twice and in so doing disobeyed God by not speaking to the rock. And it was that that kept Moses out of the promised land. Why? Why did God tell Moses not to not strike the rock again, but the second time to speak to it? It's because that rock was a symbol, was a representation, a a foreshadowing picture, if you will, of Christ, who was to be struck once on the cross of Calvary. Christ was not to be struck twice but once in sacrifice for us, and then out of him, life-giving water to his people. So out of stones, life-giving water. Another interesting imagery is uh, we see Ezekiel, the prophet, in one of his visions, 
picturing the temple of God. Of course, at this time, Ezekiel is prophesying, the temple would have been destroyed by the Babylonians. So the Babylonians came, they destroyed the temple, they conquered Israel, took them into exile because of Israel's disobedience to God. This was a part of his punishment. So he sent them into exile, but Ezekiel was prophesying of the return, prophesying of the temple being rebuilt. And so Ezekiel sees visions of a new, rebuilt, glorious temple. And in one of those visions, he sees in the temple water flowing out. In Ezekiel 47.1, says the man, most likely an angel, revealing these things to Ezekiel, the man brought me back to the entrance to the temple and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. So this picture that Ezekiel sees, this vision, he sees water, life-giving water coming out from God's presence. We also see in scripture, uh, the water that was used during the feast of the tabernacles. Uh, The Israelites had several feasts throughout their calendar year. One of those feasts was the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. And this was a time when the Israelite men and boys would go out and they would actually set up tents, set up these small tabernacles, if you will, these tents. And it was a way of remembering Uh, commemorating their time in the wilderness when they lived in tents during those 40 years from Egypt to the promised land. And during this week-long feast, there is uh, a ceremony in which each day there would be a a ongoing supply of water. And so they would use this water as a symbol reminding them of the fact that their whole time that they were in the wilderness, God provided for them water. And so each day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the priests would go and draw water from the pool of Siloam and pour it out by the altar. And then on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, this water drawing festival reached its high point and more water and ceremony were, uh, were given to it than on any of the other previous days. And so this water at the Feast of the tabernacles symbolizes God's life-giving to the people. We are now called by God to be this life-giving water to the world. We read in John 7, verse 37 to 39, in the context of the Feast of Tabernacles, it says, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this, he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So Jesus says, in the context of this water festival, this water ceremony at the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus says, come to me, you who are thirsty, and I will give you ever-living water to drink. 
And then he says, for those who believe in me, rivers of living water will flow from them. We are living stones, if you will, that by the grace of God, bring forth living water. That we share the grace of God, the the healing of God through the gospel to the world. And so God has called us to be this living water. And so Ed Welch says at the end of this chapter, he says, Jesus is the stone that gives living water. As we believe in him, we are reborn of water and the spirit, John 3, 5, and are remade into living temple stones that are so filled with the presence of God that we cannot contain his work in us. It seeps out and brings life to family, friends, neighbors, and the world. Chapter 35, he brings us into the imagery of the realm of the tabernacle and its sacrificial system. And one of the questions he has in chapter 35 is, now that Christ has come, is there any more need for sacrifices? Well, in one sense, no. We know from the scriptures, especially from the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, that Christ's sacrifice was the end of the Old Testament animal sacrificial system because Christ was sufficient and final for our atonement. He is the one final sacrifice that makes us right with God. In that sense of atonement, there are no more ongoing sacrifices. Christ is it. He is the final and ultimate perfect sacrifice. But yet the New Testament does still talk about us as believers uh, being used as, as offering sacrifices to God. So we still offer sacrifices to God in the New Testament, but these are not sacrifices of atonement. Christ offered that sacrifice once and for all. So what are these sacrifices then? They're more like after the pattern of free will offerings or thanksgiving offerings in the Old Testament. These are offerings that flow out of the grace that we have received. So these are not earning us favor with God. Christ has already earned our place with God by his atoning sacrifice on the cross. The sacrifices that we continually offer to God are sacrifices of praise, sacrifices of thanksgiving and worship. So for example, we read in the New Testament that love, our love for God, as well as our love for one another is described as a sacrifice that we offer to the Lord. Uh, We read in Philippians 4 and Hebrews 13 that our good works and our generosity to others are a well-pleasing sacrifice to the Lord. Obedience to God's word has always been preferable to ritual sacrifices. 1 Samuel 15, 22 and 23 says, I would have rather had your obedience rather than the sacrifices of rams and burnt offerings. And so God is not pleased with ritualistic uh, going through the rote motions worship. God desires our hearts, our love, our obedience. 
And then Paul describes in Romans 12, 1, that we are to offer our whole selves, our whole lives as living sacrifices to the Lord. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And so we offer uh, to the Lord our whole selves, our mind, our actions, our words, our day-to-day lives. And so we see in this scripture God's pattern of grace, the way that God's grace normally operates, and it always begins with God, doesn't it? That's how grace works. Grace, in order to be grace, has to begin with God. It can't be earned by us at all. And so God acts first, and he grants us new mercies in Christ on the basis of Christ's substitution and work for us. He gives us mercy. God makes promises to us, covenant promises, and he keeps them because his faithfulness is secure and is not determined by our faithfulness. And he always acts first and loves the most. God's grace acts first and God's grace can never be be outdone by us. His love is always the most. And then we respond. So God acts first in grace. We respond to that grace as living sacrifices to God. He says in the chapter, this devotion to the Lord is worked out in the details of everyday life. It includes how we work together as the body of Christ, each exerting the gifts God has given without jealousy or envy all of which can be summarized as love that is genuine, generous, humble, and persistent, even when mistreated. And he draws that from Romans 12, where right after Paul says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices to God, in Philippians 12, 3 to 8, he says, here is how you do that in the context of the body of Christ, by using your gifts out of love for the benefit of one another, for the building up of the body. He says, this devotion to the Lord, our living sacrifice, this is worked out in the day-to-day, everyday activities of life. So we are living sacrifices. Continuing the Old Testament tabernacle imagery, he says, we also wash at the basin. In the Old Testament, the priests would wash their hands and feet at the bronze basin before entering the tabernacle into the Lord's presence. So between the altar and the entrance to the tent itself, to the tabernacle, there was this bronze basin and the priests, Aaron and his sons, and those that followed after them would wash their hands and feet. This was largely ceremonial, but it communicated the idea of cleansing, of purification coming into the presence of the Lord. Well, we have been cleansed, haven't we? We have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. So we have been sanctified, purified, cleansed by Christ's work for us on the cross. But yet there's also a New Testament way of communicating the idea that we continually cleanse ourselves. 
we continually wash at the basin by confessing our sins. And that's even imaged or kind of pictured in those Old Testament priests washing their hands and feet. They would do that every time because they were continually sinful. They would come and they would wash every time. They would repeatedly wash when they would come into the presence of the Lord. And so even though we have been cleansed, sanctified, cleansed, purified, we still come confessing our sins to God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, that is what some of you were, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. And so Paul wants us to refuse to tolerate personal ungodliness. He also wants us to not not to tolerate past condemnation and old regrets. So in the most resolute of ways, he heaps on us what has been accomplished in Jesus through the spirit. Paul says, this is what you were sinful, but now you've been washed. Now you've been cleansed. And the, the idea, the implication is continue to live out that cleansed way of life. Continue to purify yourselves, even as he has purified you already. So he says, when you come to the basin, you are not repeatedly coming to Jesus for admittance to his house. The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. So you don't come for admittance to his house. We are granted admittance by the once for all sacrifice of Christ. But we come and wash and confess our sins because priests still sin. Though you have been set apart by God for himself, relationships can still be affected by unconfessed sin. So you confess daily and confession enhances open and close fellowship. So we come to the basin and we wash and we confess to God in prayer. And he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Continuing the tabernacle imagery, we also light the incense in the holy place, in the tabernacle. And when that incense, this altar of incense, when it is lit, when it is, the, the incense is offered on it, the, the smoke, the aroma comes up before the Lord. And so in the tabernacle, the altar of incense was continually offered up. And when it was doing this, it was a sweet smelling aroma to the Lord. And it represented the prayers of the priests and the people. He says, in God's house, there's lots of talking. That's what families do. When you are needy, live among needy people and live with your generous father, you talk all the more. So we pray. He responds with words from scripture, silence and home simply do not go together. In other words, home, family means fellowship. It means talking when we talk to the Lord, the Bible says that the imagery is like a sweet smelling savor of incense coming up before the Lord in which he is well pleased. Psalm 141 verse 2 says, May my prayer be set before you like incense. May the lifting up of my hands be like the evening sacrifice. And so we see in Scripture that the altar of incense represents the prayers 
of the people. And they are offered up before the Lord. And he receives them as a sweet-smelling aroma. And so he says at the end of the chapter, he says, picture bowls. Picture these bowls, golden bowls. And our prayers are placed in these bowls and they are offered to the Lord along with the prayers of other saints. This is very vividly portrayed in Revelation chapter 5 and chapter 8. He says, this glimpse of spiritual realities gives new zeal to priestly prayers. God, indeed, hears the prayers of one solitary child who has been abandoned. He also is pleased when the bowls are full. This is why we ask other people to pray. With our more desperate prayers, we ask as many people to pray as possible, and not one prayer is inconsequential to the resulting heavenly aroma. And so God invites us in. He says, come in, enter in to my presence. And that entrance into God's presence has been paved by the work of Jesus Christ, by his life of obedience, his sacrificial death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave, and his ascension to the right hand of the Father. Jesus Christ opened the way for us to enter in to the holy presence of God. And God says, enter in. And when you come, you don't need to bring a sacrifice of atonement because that's already been brought. But when you come, bring a sacrifice of praise. Bring a sacrifice of love. Bring a sacrifice of obedience. Of Bring a sacrifice of yourselves, offering your bodies as living sacrifices to the Lord. And when you come, come washing, confessing your sins. And I am faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of your sins. And when you come, come with your prayers. Come with your words and offer them up before me as incense before my throne. And I will receive them as a sweet smelling savor. And so God has invited us in. We are priests of the most high God. May that idea transform the way that we commune with our God and the way that we live out our lives before the world, serving as living water to the nations, to the people. God has given us living water. May we give living water to those that we come in contact with. Let's bow in prayer together. Father, we thank you that we've had these few minutes tonight to uh, study your word and the way that your word describes us as priests, as those who have been brought near to you. And now because of Christ, you are remaking us into a temple. The church, the body of Christ is a temple to the Lord. We individually are a place where your Holy Spirit dwells. You are causing us, Lord, to be living stones that provide living water to the people. You've invited us to come and to enter, bringing the sacrifices of our praise and worship. You've invited us to come and to confess our sins before you, cleansing us from uh, all unrighteousness. You've invited us to come and to bring our prayers, our incense, our offering of incense before you. Father, we thank you for all that you have done for us and drawing us near to you into your presence by grace. God, I pray that you would continue to reveal to us through your word how we might be your treasured holy possession. 
and how we might commune and fellowship with you, not only now, but for all of eternity. God bless your people. May your grace come to rest upon our church and may you help us to walk in the light of your word and shine that light to others. We pray this, Father, in the name of Christ. Amen.